LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Steve Taylor, who joins us to discuss his book, Disconnected, The Roots of Human Cruelty and How Connection Can Heal the World. The materialist paradigm which has shaped science and society for the last several hundred years is now driving the slow-motion suicide of the human race. The materialist worldview, which denies the existence of anything beyond the five-sense, three-dimensional reality it takes to be all that there is, causes states of extreme mental fragility, incompleteness and insignificance. These feelings generate cravings to accumulate power and wealth and to dominate others. This pathology is most prevalent among those at the top in business and politics which, taken together, control the world. Yet for much of human history, we dwelled in a state of profound connection with the world around us, with an innate understanding that all creation springs from a single source. But does the modern denial of the very possibility of meaning or purpose in existence stem solely from fundamentalist materialism, or might its origin lie deeper in the dark mists of our collective past? Hello and welcome, Steve, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Hi, Greg. Great to be with you again. Steve, today we're going to be talking about your new book just out. Uh, That's entitled Disconnected, The Roots of Human Cruelty and How Connection Can Heal the World. Before we jump into that, just uh, tell listeners a little bit about yourself and your work. I'm a, I'm an author. Of, I've written, uh, I think, about 14 books now on spirituality and psychology and also some books of poetry. Um, I'm also a university lecturer and researcher in the field of spiritual psychology or transpersonal psychology. And, um, yeah, I guess uh, that, that's those are my main roles in life. How would you sum up the new book? I mean, the title's fairly self-explanatory, but this extreme separation uh, that you've written about uh, seems to be a somehow both a symptom and a cause of the times that we're living in. But just yeah, how would you expand upon the title just to characterize you know what what readers can expect? The the book is really um, man. I've always been fascinated by the uh, the extremes of human nature. You know the, the fact that human beings can be so brutal and cruel, and human societies can be so full of injustice and and discord and. You know, the world could be so full of warfare and, and destruction and other kind of uh, social ailments. But at the same time, human beings can be, we can be incredibly altruistic and selfless, you know, and even on a group level, there can sometimes be harmonious conditions in groups. So I've always been fascinated by, you know, about why human nature covers such extremes, all the way from psychopaths on the one hand, all the way to saints or mystics on the other hand. So the book is really my attempt to ex- to understand human nature. And um, I suggest that the main factor which determines 
human behavior and also human personality and also social conditions um, is the degree of connection or disconnection. So disconnection tends to, to lead to brutality and oppression and injustice, whereas connection leads to harmony, uh, kindness, benevolence, all of, all of the, the good things in human nature. And by connection, I mean like an empathic connection, the ability to empathy, empathize with others, the ability to feel compassion. And, and by disconnection, I mean the, the inability to empathize, the inability to feel compassion. So, so yeah, so it's, it's really about those extre- explaining the extremes of human nature and the extremes of human behavior. Well, just to quote from the book, uh, you speak about, uh, quote here, the state of extreme separation that hyper-disconnected people experience. This means they have a continual sense of incompleteness together with a with a feeling of fragility and insignificance. These feelings generate a desire to accumulate power and wealth and to dominate others. Now, that to me mm-hmm. sounds very much, you know, um, what, certainly one characteristic of the times we live in, um, as mentioned. But those few aspects, those traits taken together um, can prove to be extremely dangerous, dangerous, and I think they are. And it now feels, in terms of like, you know, the systems that govern our societies, you know, political system, and from that you get, you know, economic systems and mm. other and other social systems, really, you know, man-made systems, shall we say, as opposed to natural ones, that mm-hmm. it feels like a majority of that is directly or indirectly in control of people with minds disordered in this way. I agree with you. Yeah, I think I think it is the most pressing um, concern of our times. I mean, I think, you know, human societies have always been fairly full of injustice. You know, there's always been inequality and hierarchy. But in the previous in previous times, in the sort of pre-industrial age, I mean, pre-industrial societies were full of injustice, too. You know, there was nothing more unjust than a hierarchical system where aristocrats are born into privilege and peasants or serfs are born into uh, suffering and poverty. But in some ways, in the post-industrial age, it's actually become more unjust, even though, you know, there, there has been a, the development of some degree of democracy. But one, one trend in the sort of post-modern, post, well, post-industrial age is that more and more disconnected people have been able to rise into positions of power. Because as you said in, in that quote, you know, the, the main trait of disconnected or hyper-disconnected people is that they feel this tremendous desire for power and, and wealth and, and attention and admiration because they're so separate, they feel a constant sense of lack or incompleteness. So they, they crave for, for kind of external things to try to strengthen themselves or reinforce themselves, like, you know, external things like um, wealth and, and power. So, you know, th- these people do feel this insatiable need to, to take in, to take up positions of power. And that's what basically happens in, in our societies. You know, I mean, one one positive positive thing about pre-industrial societies amidst all their injustice was that you know, it was actually difficult for, for hyper-disconnected people to rise into positions of power. And if you were born into poverty in a feudal system, you couldn't have any influence on your society. You could influence your local community, your family, maybe your village, maybe your local area. But you couldn't, because of those social conditions, you were unable to rise into positions of, of high power. But now, you know... And certainly in the 20th century, the 20th century was probably the most, the, the latter period of the 20th century was the probably most extreme manifestations of this, manifestation of this, that, you know, hyper-disconnected people, brutal, violent people, ruthless, cruel people were able to rise into positions of high power all over the world. 
And, you know, that not just political power, but it, it manifests itself in any organization, really, but particularly very hierarchical organizations. Uh, yeah, that's why a lot of CEOs and HEOs, uh, there's a kind of a high prevalence of psychopathic traits in those professions. So, yeah, so you're right. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Well, if you look at some of those traits that mentioned in that quote from your book, so a continual sense of incompleteness. Well, if you have a, let's look at the opposite of some of these things, you know, a sense of completeness that some of us might feel, perhaps not saying that everything, you know, in your life has been how you felt it should have been or could have been, but that you understand that you're complete as you are, that you can, you know, work on yourself but it's all it's already there as it were um mm. a feeling a feeling of fragility you know if you the opposite of that if you feel you know empowered and empowering uh, a sense of insignificance you know opposite of that if you realize that we're all significant highly significant parts of of uh the natural world and the wider cosmos all of creation itself mm. then you don't feel the need to have there's nothing wrong with nice things you know nothing mm. wrong at all nothing wrong with having a television nothing wrong with having a nice three-piece suite whatever it happens to be or a nice car but these don't define your life so you don't have that desire for power and wealth so what i would characterize mm. those things as is having power over yourself as it were you know feeling empowered and feeling in control and i think that's exactly and when you feel like that you don't desire power and domination over others yeah, that, that's one of the things I say in the book. That, that's one of the reasons why connected people, um, you know, there, there are, just as there are disconnected people, there are connected or even hyper-connected people. And, and exactly as you say, they don't, they don't feel a sense of lack. They don't, they, don't, they don't feel separate. They feel some sense of participation in the being of, of the world itself, the beings of other people. They feel a sense of communion um, or general connection with other people and other living beings. So they they don't they don't feel trapped inside themselves, and, they, and so they don't feel this urge to to add things to themselves. And as you say, it doesn't mean that we live as ascetics, or you know that we take a vow of voluntary poverty. It just means that you know we we you know we we have a certain degree of um, moderate uh, consumption of things that we need, rather than excessive consumption. And we don't have this insatiable need to to buy more and more, to gain more and more, to achieve more and more. Because, you know, basically we have a, on some deep level, we have a sense of connection and therefore a sense of some degree of inner contentment or self-sufficiency. Um, and and uh, yeah, that just totally obviates the need to accumulate power and wealth. And it's a, it's a big problem really because um, it means that altruistic people do not feel the same need to, to gain power as hyper-disconnected people. So it leaves those positions free for hyper disconnected people i mean obviously you know there are some altruistic leaders uh, as i point out in the book and you know some people work their way up through hierarchies very slowly due to their you know their their, their skills and ability and you know even the um the, the harmonious conditions that they create which lead to uh, higher levels of productivity and so that so that sometimes happens even in politics but it does mean that there are there are sort of a significant number of hyper disconnected people. There are always a significant number of hyper disconnected people in positions of power, unfortunately. You'll remember the story of Robert Maxwell. Oh the, yeah. Yeah. The, <clears throat> the UK newspaper tycoon and his story is notorious, surrounded by some degree of mystery, but no small amount of scandal. This was an extremely wealthy individual 
who uh, got into, uh, well, he ended up in deep water, actually, but he got into hot water. Um, <laughs> and there was embezzlement of funds from pension funds from one of his uh, employees, one of his newspapers. And uh, it was a criminal act. And this guy had more money than he could ever spend. And yet he stole money from, you know, soon to be pensioners, you know, basically their livelihood in their, in the twilight of their years. And he ended up on his private yacht going overboard. Was he pushed? Did he jump? Who knows? And he died. And I remember at the time thinking about that and just couldn't fathom it. You know, what was driving this guy mm. to steal a fortune from people who had a fraction of what he had when he already had all the money, he could have any material thing he wanted, yeah. but it wasn't enough. He was, I, I write about, I do write about him in the book because he's almost like the archi archetypal example of a hyper disconnected person operating in the world of business. And he, he's also archetypal in the sense that it's pretty clear why he became so disconnected. And that's because he had a, a very traumatic childhood. He was brought up in extreme poverty. He said he was so, he was sometimes so, so hungry that they would, they would occasionally have to eat farm animals or pets um, that they kept. But um, but yeah, he, he's, as I recall, his father was an alcoholic and he was brought, brought up in extreme poverty. Some of his siblings died in in early childhood. So and he, he um, at the age of sixteen, he joined the the army. He was actually originally from the Czech Republic. His name was not Robert Maxwell. He took on this kind of identity as an English gentleman. But his original, he was a, a Jewish uh, from a Jewish family in what's now the Czech Republic. So he was a, he enlisted in the, the Czech army and ended up fighting for the British forces. And after the war, he moved to Britain. Uh, but he was he was driven by this incredible sense of lack, this incredible sense of something was missing. He was he felt this insatiable desire to accumulate power. And it was it was obvious in the way that he just bought endless companies. He'd buy, you know, endless businesses to the point where he had no idea how many businesses he owned, how many sort of corporations or companies he owned. It was just he was just driven by this insatiable desire to build an, an empire of property and wealth. But he he couldn't have relationships with other people. You know, other people were just objects to him. He had no emotional connection to others, even to his own family. He had no interest in anything, no interest in music or or sport or anything apart from his his work. You know, and one of his um, one of his colleagues said that who worked closely with him. And th this is a fairly you know, typical description of all hyper-disconnected people, that he was driven by an insatiable desire to, to, to do anything at all, to have any kind of activity to stop him feeling bored and depressed. So he was driven by a terror of, of doing nothing and, you know, have, of having empty time because he, you know, the, I think when, when you have this deep sense of lack inside yourself, fundamentally you are, you are deeply discontent. And whenever you are inactive or alone, that's when you feel your inner discontent. So you you're constantly trying to escape it. Yeah, I think you could you could uh, project that out species wide, couldn't you? Really, some of the comments you've just been saying about you know uh, within the, within the human race, you know this some of this malcontents and this this terror of of I don't of who knows what, and uh, you know the cult of busyness and distraction. And yeah. anything to avoid being with your own thoughts and, and what that might, what that sort of, what the inner life might tell you about yourself, uh, again, individually and yeah. collect collectively. Yeah, that's right. I mean, again, that's one of the markers of uh, of a person's degree of disconnection or connection. You know, if you are able to 
to happily do nothing and to spend time with yourself, to spend time in solitude and, and you know, not, not having anything in particular to occupy your time. Then that's, that's a sign that you are a connected person because you, you don't have that inner discontent, which is created by disconnection. Whereas if you do feel that insatiable need to be busy, to fill all of your free time with activity or dis- distractions or entertainments, that suggests that there is a, a sense of inner lack that you're trying to escape. But, but as you say, I mean, the, these traits become cultural trends as well. They become part of our social conditioning. So, you know, because we live in, you know, what you could call disconnected societies, those, those disconnected traits are imposed on us, you know, so, so we're conditioned to be active. We're conditioned to, to spend very little time with our inner being. You know, a lot of people are, you know, we're, we're encouraged basically by many people to spend time in nature and reconnect with nature, this, that, and the other thing in terms of improving your, your well-being mentally, spiritually, as well as physically. And, you know, I know you've written about this and advocated this. You just, when you're mentioning there being content to kind of do nothing and just be with your own thoughts or lack of them, mm-hmm. um, you know, I can remember uh, as a child, you know, not having a lot of friends, not because, you know, I wasn't a friendly person, but that's just the way it was. Again, some people like to have large numbers of people around them, a lot of people to call friends as a way of validating themselves. But I can remember enjoying just sitting inside in the winter and listening to the wind outside and watching the raindrops trickle down the glass. Mm. Uh, You could, you know, you go, there's a whole world that opens up when you, turn your attention to, to things, especially things you don't normally pay attention to. Uh, and hence being out in nature, people have said, go out and just, you know, find something to, to contemplate, um, to, to give your attention to that you wouldn't normally, like a flower, for example. And you look at this flower and you look at this flower. And again, it's suddenly all these other dimensions of reality seem to, to, to yeah. open up. And um, as trite as that might sound, it's actually very effective, you know, turning your attention to little details Oh yeah, that may otherwise have escaped you. Particularly, particularly details in the natural world, but actually in the man-made environment, you know, it can be just as yeah. it can be just as interesting. Actually, to 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 con- contemplate the detail in something you never looked at. It's a little bit like mm. looking under a microscope for the first time. You know, I remember getting a microscope when I was a boy, and uh, yeah. putting anything. And I'm talking about you know <laughs> grains of sugar. Uh, things I found in the kitchen, bits of cloth, anything around the house, sticking it under the microscope, and it was just amazing. You know what? What else there was if you actually yeah. if you actually look? Yeah, yeah, that that's great. It's, it it is a whole new world opening up to you because it's basically the present that's opening up to you. Because if you're filling your life with constant activity, you're you're living in a state of elsewhereness. You know, you're not present, and you're missing everything that takes place in the present. And even if you, you know, you're actually here in the present, in the present moment, your mind's usually full of the clutter of thoughts and, you know, associations. So you can't really perceive your surroundings clearly because there's this sort of fog of of thoughts passing through your mind. But when you relax into the the moment and, you know, you, you, you stop, you stop busyness and your mind begins to slow down, then yet it is like this whole new dimension of reality opens up. That, you know, it's that the panorama of the present, and suddenly the most mundane things look beautiful and interesting, and suddenly you notice things that you—they're always there, but you don't normally pay attention to them, and everything begins to, begins to look clearer and brighter, and also you, you feel this sense of well-being, you know, because 
being present always brings a sense of well-being. That is the condition of, of being present, whereas the condition of being absent or caught up in thoughts or activities or distractions, it's always a, a kind of a restless discontent. So yeah, it's, and, and, and nature lends itself to that contemplation. I think that's one of the reasons. That's one of the reasons why human beings love nature, because we it, it brings it brings us into that state of presence. You're probably aware of the work of Steven Pinker. Um, mm-hmm. One of his better known books is "The Better Angels of Our Nature," um, mm-hmm. which I haven't actually read, but I've listened to him speak, and I know you know what some of the subjects he writes about, and. You know, his contention is that despite all of the negativity bias that we have as a species, and despite all the negative news coming out and all the ominous trends, Hmm. that actually things for the species have kind of never been better and are continue to get better. I do see where he's coming from, and I'm I'm no Hmm. I'm no doom monger at all. However, just at this particular phase in time, you know, here we are in the first half of the we'll soon not even be able to say first quarter of the 21st century we'll soon be into the second quarter of the 21st century how did that oh, happen yeah. um <laughs> but that this uh, pathocracy that you write about has been increasingly coming to the fore and it is driving a lot of these negative trends these problems that were are coming down on top of us at the minute we're having to decide how to deal with and mm. you used the word uh, psychopath psychopathic at the top of the hour and that's bandied around a lot these days, and uh, you know it's kind of almost become like a fashionable thing, um, mm-hmm. to, you know, to basically label anybody that you, whose behaviour you don't like as as a psychopath. It's not that mm-hmm. easy. However, I would say it's still a very real thing, and psychopathic people associate perhaps with serial killers or something. It doesn't have to be like that at all. Uh, if you, mm-hmm. anyone's ever read the book or watched the film American Psycho, it can be much more um, devious and almost subtle than that but it's a it's a real mm. thing and the problem is uh that these people have not just because of the positions that they're in but partly that have disproportionate influence yeah well do, don't, you shouldn't really ask me about Stephen Pinker because I'm, I'm not a fan of his work at all I I really um he's a he's a kind of advocate of sort of hardline fundamentally scientism as I would I would say and his book the better angels of, Na- of our nature is kind of ridden with you know, false statistics, misleading examples, particularly, I mean, this is slightly, um, you know, tangential, but particularly when he talks about um, prehistoric warfare or sort of, you know, primal societies, levels of warfare in um, pre-modern societies, he just cherry picks any statistics statistics which support his argument and uses misleading examples. But, you know, to to return to your point, um, yeah, in some ways... Yeah, it's, it's difficult, really. In some ways, I mean, I am, I'm, I'm kind of by nature an optimist, and I can see positive trends happening. You know, I can see, for example, that there's a burgeoning interest in spirituality, which is great. More and more people are meditating and following spiritual paths of one form or another. Um, and I think more people are, you know, turning towards a, a kind of sim- a simpler way of life, turning away from materialist pursuits, and more, more and more people are becoming interested in in nature and and sort of pastimes which involve contact with nature. So there are some positive trends, definitely. But also, you know, equally, there are there are some negative trends too. And, you know, what I use the term pathocracy a lot in the book, which is government by hyper-disconnected people or government by um, psych- people with psychopathic or narcissistic traits. Yeah, and in some ways, that, that's got worse. I think the age of social media encourages 
narcissistic people to um, attain positions of power. And it discourages kind of altruistic, connected people from attaining positions of power. I was at a conference um, about a month ago um, at the University of Warwick. It was a conference of the Open University. And there was a woman there, um, and she was, she was a very sort of charismatic, articulate young woman. And somebody said to her at the end, she was advocating reform in the criminal justice system. She'd worked in prisons for a number of years as a kind of social worker. And somebody said to her at the end, you should be a politician. You'd make a great politician. And she said, no, I don't want to go into politics. I'm too sensitive. You know, I couldn't stand the attention and the criticism and all the sort of social media. You know, I don't want to be the target of Twitter abuse and so forth. And I think, you know, that's a, a test case in a way that, you know, connected altruistic people, empathic people are not particularly drawn to the world of power anymore. Maybe they never were, but probably, you know, that's, it is more the case now than ever. Whereas people with disconnective traits, people who do desire attention and, and power and wealth and, and admiration, they are more strongly drawn to political, political power. And you can see that in the, in the present UK government, you know, it's, uh, it's full of people who I would, you know, in my role as a psychologist, you know, I, I see, um, you know, signs of narcissism, psychopathy and sociopathy and so forth. So, yeah, that, that, that's probably one of the most uh, dangerous trends of our time, an increasing tendency for hyper disconnected people to, to take up positions of power. Have you seen the film Gladiator with Russell Crowe? Oh, yeah. Great film. I don't know yeah. if you remember quite early on in the film, Emperor Marcus Aurelius. Uh, doesn't want his son to succeed him oh, yeah. as emperor because his son is corrupt, narcissistic, basically turns out to be psychopathic. He's just a horrible individual. Yeah. And so he wants um, Maximus to have that position. And Maximus, of course, said, no, that's absolutely not. I, you know, I'm not of that world. Mm. You know, the politics, the Senate, blah, 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 basically trying to rule himself out. And then, of course, Marcus Aurelius says, well, that's why it must be you, mm, you know, because exactly. you don't because you don't want it, because, you know, to have a different type of person uh, in a yeah. position of leadership. You know. Yeah, I forgot about that. But yeah, that's, that's a good example of what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's um, I mean, in some ways, you know, anybody who desires power should not be able to attain power, whereas people who don't desire, desire power should be given power because, because they're really the only people who can use power responsibly there's some we talked about um pre-industrial societies and also the ancient world and we think we, uh, we know we touched upon ideas that would be relevant in indigenous societies there's some I mean, you'll probably know more about this than me you know having written your book the fall but there would seem to be some evidence that in maybe hunter-gatherer type societies you know like you know millennia ago maybe even tens of thousands of years ago that leadership might of a you know of a tribe or whatever might have been more of a rotating thing you know something that mm. passed around or that people yeah. people would take leadership based on their skills so if yeah. you were if you were building something new that project might be led by the best person with the best building skills you know and if you were i don't know that you know the shaman for example had his role in those societies because he or she had their strengths and if you were planning a trip somewhere, maybe, you know, it, it would be like, who's the best person to lead this particular mm, thing? Mm. You know, and it, it wasn't the case of like one sort of strong man, usually let's say it would have been a man at the top and a yeah, hierarchy, yeah. you know, like a pyramid style hierarchy, that that is a, a function really of 
you know, of uh, you know, maybe agriculture, sedentary lifestyle, what we later became industrialization. We see that very much as the model for you know the, the empires that have risen up over the mm. millennia. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, in fact, in this book, I, I discuss these societies too, and I suggest that we can learn a lot from these um, kind of indigenous hunter-gatherer societies because they were, you know, we, we always tend to belittle, you know, so-called pre-civilized societies. And we, we we think of human history as a kind of constant progression. But in actual fact, primitive hunter-gatherer, I, sh- I shouldn't use the word pr- primitive actually because that's demeaning in itself, but prehistoric hunter-gatherer societies were very sophisticated and, and, and they had very sophisticated ways of maintaining their egalitarianism, of maintaining the, the harmony of the com- community. And what they did was, one of the things they did was that if anybody showed desires for, a desire for dominance, if they recognised that there was an alpha male in the midst who who wanted to take over the group and, you know, dominate them, they would ostracize him. You know, they would move away from him or they would, you know, leave him um, when they, when they, when they moved to the next site, they would leave him uh, to his own devices. In really extreme cases, they, they would even murder, murder these people because they knew that they were so dangerous and they would, they would destroy the harmony of the community. So that, that was one way in which they preserved their egalitarianism. And as you say, other ways were, the, were the, was, that they would assign leaderships. They wouldn't wait for people to to volunteer to become leaders. Leaders would be assigned, you know, based on the basis of their wisdom and experience, and also, as you say, on the basis of the the task in hand, you know, the the decisions which need to be made. So it would be it would be it would be rotational, according to the situation, and it, it wouldn't be voluntary. It would be assigned by the others. So I think you know we 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 need some to return to some of those principles. I think. Ironically, this is what democracy was supposed to be about, which was, you know, um, mm. elected leaders uh, changing, you know, elected by the people changing from over a, in an agreed period of time so that somebody else could have a go. <laughs> so if, yeah. one, if one set of people failed, um, one thing I want to do is recommend to listeners at this stage uh, to check out my interviews with Nick Doffel one entitled Wounded Leaders, based on his book, The Other, Trauma, Abandonment and Privilege. And these are very much about the the Robert Maxwell idea of something going wrong in childhood and mm. what, that, what that leads that person to become, and also intergenerational trauma things passed down. And I think to widen mm. that out a little bit, I think we could look at, um, at species-wide trauma. And this again harks back to your work on the fall and i've often speculated if probably in prehistoric times and by that i mean just back you know 15 20 000, you know post the last ice age maybe during the ice age pre the ice age if something and i know this is kind of beyond the remit of your book but i'm just bear with me uh, if something really bad happened to our species and you know and, and the planet and that we've never really recovered from it and that, but it's repressed within us mm. Uh, some kind of species-wide trauma. That's just speculation, but I'm linking mm. it to, you know, ideas of uh, you know cataclysms and things in the past, and that doesn't account for necessarily for psychopaths in modern society. But it's mm. an avenue. It's an avenue of investigation that I, I found to be very, mm. um, very interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it, it could apply to to what I call the fall. You know, I mean, one of the one of the interesting things about the fall is that every culture around the world has some kind of myth of the fall, some kind of Myth of um, you know a period of degeneration or falling out of a period of prehistoric harmony, um, 
And the, and the, the myths are kind of very similar, you know, whether, whether it's the Chinese Chinese myth of the age of perfect perfect virtue, the Hindu myths of, of different ages, uh, the Greek myths of a golden age and so forth, or the Iranian myth of Paradisa, and obviously the, the biblical myth of Adam, Adam and Eve. They're all very similar, as if it is some sort of collective human memory of, of something that shifted. And on a psychological level, it, you know, the fall was the... The emergence of a, a strong sense of individuality, you know, the falling out of a sense of connection and participation. So, yeah, that, that's very possible. And, and there was some of the, some of the myths also re- refer to. They seem to refer to the end of the hunter gatherer era. You know, the shift to to the, the the era of farming and agriculture, and that they refer to that as a degeneration, which it was. You know, because the lives of hunter gatherers were, were fairly easy and fairly affluent compared to the, the farmers who came after them. So you could be right. I mean, I think trauma is a big factor in disconnection. You know, the most disconnected people are usually the people who've had the most traumatic experiences during childhood, whereas connected people tend to, not always, but they tend to have had fairly harmonious uh, childhoods. Well, you're mentioning these, uh, you know, the Adam and Eve story. In the Bible, we also have, of course, a story of of the flood, you know, Noah and the flood. Mm. And flood myths tend to be, universal as well planet-wide again indicating something that and there's certainly a lot of evidence i mean sea sea levels did rise catastrophically at one point so Mm. it could be something connected with that on a a kind of on an on 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 an and sorry let's say the word environmental level you know there there was um there were climatic changes which which coincided with the fall and that was really a period of of um of desiccation a period of increasing arid, arid, aridity, where previously fertile lands became deserts fairly quickly over a, over a few centuries, and I think a lot of people would traumatize that, and that seemed to trigger the fall. You know, populations which had uh, lived fairly easily in fertile lands with lots of animals and um, lots of fertile plains and lots of food sources. You know, in, in a fairly short space of time, they they had to change their ways of the ways of life, and there was this kind of life became much more difficult. Uh, so maybe it was connected to that. I mean, certainly, I think the fall was connected to that, the psychological change which these peoples underwent. Well, the previous interview that was just published before this one with John Michael Greer called The Secret of the Grail, we, he actually uh, postulates that the the Grail legend, you know, the story of King Arthur, all of that, which again has its correlates all over the world, mm-hmm. is basically talking about environmental collapse and sub- subsequent population collapse and the things that the, the species had to do to, to get through that. But again, it's all this stuff wrapped up in myth, isn't it? You know, in stories, uh, things that are passed down, you know, symbolic stories, analogies, and sort of it's um, there's so much hidden just beneath the surface, I think, in, in the stories that, that, that we tell ourselves and have done for thousands of years. Yeah. You know? Uh, but we now live in an age where not only is it hardcore materialism, but in an age when we disregard our ancestors uh, in many ways, particularly their fanciful stories as we see it, you know, and yet these were the people that, uh, you know, erected the uh, the stone circles and built the pyramids and all the rest of it. Yeah, it's it's the myth of progress, which I refer to easy, earlier. It's just every generation likes to feel that they're moving onward and moving further away from a, a kind of a savage or barbaric past, a, prim- a primitive era. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's so much hidden in our history and probably the, there are many civilizations hidden in our history that we don't know about. 
a formative book for me. I mean, research and understanding has moved on since then, but in the early 90s, I read Julian Jane's book, The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, oh, yeah. uh, a book that's referred to a lot. So it, in that context, I would say that it seems that this loss of a or move away from a sort of collective consciousness the rise of individuality and even to you know Jung's idea of individuation that this was a necessary and ultimately you know an a positive evolutionary step but we may have gone too far with it or we may have taken a wrong turn at some point but overall this is something that needed to happen it was the evolution of consciousness yeah I'm not sure about that I mean uh, I'm not sure if it actually needed to happen it happened but whether it was some kind of evolutionary movement or whether it's some kind of accident or some kind of aberration. I sometimes think it was basically a kind of aberration that, that, that certain, certain human groups fell into a disconnected state. Uh, they lost a sense of participation in nature. They became alienated from their own bodies and, and so forth. Um, but I mean, I, you know, whether it was accidental or, or, or somehow meant to be, I think we are moving past that now. I think, you know, slowly we are moving into, you know, what I call in the fall, a, a transfall era, an era in which the, the kind of prehistoric connective traits are, are re-emerging on some level. And certainly, I mean, this is a long-term trend over the last 300 years or so, but I think we are kind of reintegrating the, the sense of participation that we lost when the fall occurred. Well, I would say a, perhaps a better way to characterize it <clears throat> Again, not necessarily saying that that these what I've just been talking about is all you know my personal opinion. It's not the result of like any research, I personal mm. original research I've done. But in the people that I've read, the idea is that there was this increasing sense of of individuality and individual um, achievement. But ultimately, it was going from a state of ultimately, in terms of creation, a state of oneness, and then an atomization, a dis disintegration. Uh, to an order, you know, and then there was a process that would ultimately culminate in a reintegration. If you see what I mean, mm. so it's kind of like a journey, if you know what I mean. So yeah. whether whether you feel yeah. it was necessary or not, it's kind of like this has happened. But ultimately, it's about experiencing something, you know, in that individual sense, in that um, isolated atomized sense, in order to come back together and have learnt something from the process. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com.